And these last two weeks, so we have two weeks left in the course tonight, next week, I thought it would be good then to take the study we've been doing on impermanence, and then now we have a case study, which is this physical life that we have. And uh, it, it's such a powerful place to practice the or contemplate impermanence, because we see so clearly all the potency of that reflection. And you know, it's so easy when we're feeling good and contemplating impermanence, but you know, all we need to do is <laughs> get sick, or there's a great story, I think it was in Crooked, that book, Crooked Cucumber, which is a biography of Suzuki Roshi uh, that was written, and... Uh, I think in that book there's the story of uh, he being with some of his students at Tassajara, the retreat center they have south of San Francisco. And they were swimming in a little stream where there was a pool with a waterfall, and students were swimming and said, oh, you should come in, Roshi, swim with us. And he was an older man at that time, but anyway, he went in and went swimming with them. And... Uh, probably know how this is, but sometimes with these these waterfalls, not big ones, but there's a little force that can keep you under. And so he got caught in that and was held underwater for a while, and I think even one of his students helped him get out. In any case, he noticed a tremendous fear of death arising for him being caught in that pool for however many seconds that happened for him. And then later that night, or the next time he was in front of the group giving a Dharma talk, he, he sort of owned up and realized the limitations of his practice. You know, that uh, it's very easy to think that what we've set in motion in our practice, the kind of confidence in the Dharma, the understanding of impermanence, and the alignment with the truth of impermanence, the, the wisdom of that, that that will protect us when, you know, we get cancer or when we're dying or when we're around somebody who's dying that we love. So it's really nice when we get a more realistic assessment of how protecting our insight, our wisdom is, our compassion is, when change, the very natural impersonal reality of change emerges in our life. There are people in this room who have had their teachers, you know, the nature arising, the nature of change arising in their lives in really powerful ways. And uh, probably in small groups and next week in large groups can share, like, what a shock it is. It would be nice, and we can even hold it out as an image, it would be nice to live a life where anything could happen and it wouldn't mean that the heart wouldn't respond, wouldn't feel the pain of loss, but there would be no surprise, no sense of being betrayed by getting cancer or being betrayed by losing somebody we love. But immediately, in that moment, there would be both a tremendous natural feeling of loss and a very powerful, clear sense of, of course, 
this could happen. This is what happens to human beings. It isn't a mistake. It's just a matter of time. You know, it will be different for different human beings, but it isn't in any way a failure to get sick or to die or to lose this or that, lose a job, lose a partner, lose a parent. Some of you know in the Mahabharata, this great Indian epic um, that contains the Bhagavad Gita, which is a very famous story about Krishna and Arjuna and this battle and about, really about the deep teaching of non-attachment. But it's embedded in this great epic that's, it's quite a read. It's, there's some nice translations of it. Just, just a story, kind of like the Greek epics. You know, in any case, one of the main characters at some point in that story uh, says uh, something like, "The most amazing." Like I think there was some debate or some, yeah, some kind of debate where they had to say what the most amazing thing in the world is, and the sort of stopper, the one point that got made that nobody could top was that here in this world where everyone dies, everyone thinks it's not going to happen to them or kind of on the surface we believe, sometimes think that it doesn't refer to me. Yeah, death happens, but somehow we can't really conceive or we don't really conceive that it's going to happen to us. doesn't seem appropriate to bring that to mind, which is why the Buddha has these teachings, not to be morbid, but to just bring that, just to include that. Well, of course this body is going to fall apart. And then to look at the effect on the mind when we contemplate just the very natural fact that the body will get consumed. You know, these days, because of our chemicals we put, a lot of us, or a lot of people have put in their body, or the, the relatives have put in the body at the time of death, you know, the decaying process will be, you know, extended. I don't know how long, but probably for hundreds of years with you know when they get a body gets embalmed. But still nature will win the day. It's just a question of when and through what kind of process. But the body will get broken down. You know, and it's just interesting, just as a study of history, to look at all the very creative, very technical ways human beings have learned how to preserve bodies. You know, even way back, you know, with the mummies and the different ways that human beings have tried to immoralize, immemorialize the body so that like, it means something. But nature always wins. And not just with the bodies, but with the monuments around the bodies. And it's just, it's very telling. And to own that we're part of that, like, that's just culturally in our bones this wanting to preserve the body. And cremation is its own way, I mean, in some ways I think it's quite skillful because it uh, it's like we see the dissolution, you know, all there's left are these ashes. But in another way, there's something very disgusting about the actual thought or idea of the body being eaten by other animals, even though the body's dead. So even cremation, which in some ways is probably so much more useful as a ritual than 
uh, embalming the body, putting it in a really solid thing, and you know, burying it in a just kind of pretending like decay doesn't happen. But burning also avoids the whole process of decay, and it's just interesting what a visceral response we have to stumbling upon a body filled with maggots. You know, why is it that maggots are so disgusting to us? It's it's psychological. It isn't there isn't anything like maggots I don't think are dangerous to us, but they represent something psychologically that we're part of this process of nature consuming nature, life consuming life. So we can use this. This is the really the invitation, especially tonight. And share in our small groups of your own ways that you've stumbled upon this. I remember like one of the visceral images in my childhood was going to see my mom's family in North Dakota where she grew up and at my grandma's house, uh, she took care of her, her father as he was dying and old and dying. And I remember just kind of a couple times, you know, we'd visit him and he'd have sores that would never heal. And, you know, he's an old guy and pretty vibrant for an old guy in his, I think in his 90s at the time. But I remember distinctly, you know, some sore on his lower shin or upper ankle or somewhere in this area, just like an open wound that they just couldn't take care of. You know, it's just the body just wasn't able to heal itself anymore. And they were just keeping it clean. And just that, uh, I mean, the thing about farmers, my mom's, both my sides, my mom and dad's sides of the family are all a lot of more farmers. They both grew up in farms. And, uh, you know, farmers generally, they see a lot of birth and death. And uh, more, my grandma especially, you know, really comfortable with that kind of stuff. So it was actually a relatively wholesome environment, you know, just that it wasn't like hushed up, hushed up or covered up. It was just uh, out there, and people talked about it in kind of really direct ways. So even with those relatively wholesome, uh, sort of the way it was languaged and talked about, still I remember as a kid, like, both a fascination and a repulsion at, uh, at seeing that. And just older bodies, you know, like just seeing a 90-year-old person. And, the, you know, just the smell... It's, I'm sure a lot of you know the smell of just going into your grandparents' house or great, maybe some of you knew your great-grandparents or older aunts or uncles and just the smell of older people and uh, just that stillness the, and uh, somebody's breath, an older person's breath, the, the wrinkly skin. And it's it's especially useful to remember it as a child where we we don't have the overlays that we enforce on the mind, pretending it's okay, but just a natural response to these things. And now those of us, and those some of you a lot older than me, you know, <laughs> you're the walking, talking example of these things. And just, you know, how we relate to that. These very natural things of our body. There's a great cartoon. Maybe maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe I can get someone to help me scan some of these. But uh, I'll just show you the, you won't see the specifics, but just eight frames of a little girl, baby, infant, you can't even tell, and then a little girl. They all have the same look, getting bigger, bigger, body sort of fully formed, 
and then the slow sagging of the body, shrinking of the body, and then the last picture. This is a little, a little blunt, but there's only one little bubble with words, and it says, well, that sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And what makes that so poignant is, it's like we expect life to be something that it's not. It is this birth, aging, old age, and death. And and if it's we're expecting something from that process, then it does suck. <laughs> In the sense that it doesn't deliver what we thought it was going to deliver. We thought that life was actually going to d- deliver something. But it can only deliver insight. It can only deliver the insight that allows the heart to let go of its false sense that life is supposed to deliver happiness. Life doesn't deliver happiness. There is the possibility of happiness or freedom, but it's not because life is delivering it. It's inherent when the mind is letting go, isn't clinging. Then there isn't a problem. There's another really poignant cartoon, and I think humor... There was a great line by Lily Tomlin, if I can remember it somewhat close to how she said it. If you're going to tell the truth, you better make it funny or they're going to kill you. (laughs) And I think it's true about death. If we're going to talk about death, we have to make it funny. And this is Matt Goring before he became famous with uh, Simpsons. Yeah, he wrote this, he had this life in hell. Some of you probably saw that. I remember back in the early 80s, and uh, I lived in Berkeley, and there was the East Bay Express, and they had it. And it was just great. And then since, there's some books where you can get all the series, Life and Hell. It's with the little bunny rabbits. And the little littlest bunny rabbit has one ear, and the grown-ups have two ears. Anyway, uh, I'll just read. It's just a, a little boy lying up. A rabbit, but it's just a little boy or a little girl. Line up at night, eyes open, sort of staring, clearly not being able to sleep. And the father walks in the room. What's the matter? Can't sleep? No. Yeah, I, I've been kind of worried. And the father says, about? Someday I'm going to die. Afraid of dying, eh? Yeah. I really don't want to die. And the father says, Join the club, pal. And the little boy, death is sure scary. Sure is. Let me tell you something about death. There's no escape. Isn't there, you know, like any hope? Just a little bit? But don't worry about it. You're not dead yet. Oh, great. So the father's not doing so well. Look, death is bad. And then, again, uh, then again, death isn't so bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's bad, real bad. It's the worst. (laughs) But once you're dead, at least you won't worry about it, about death anymore. You're afraid there's no heaven. But look, on the positive side, there's no hell either. Except this one. (laughs) And the little boy goes, It's unfair. No, it isn't. 
It gets everybody, no matter who you are, you're going to die. And we all get to be dead just the same amount of time, forever. <laughs> Which makes life so precious, because it's so short. That's why you mustn't be bored about your death. Oh, I'm sorry. That means you mustn't brood about your death. There's too much to experience before time runs out. So cheer up, Gloomy. There's love, laugh, and picnics. Fight injustice. Erase someone's rock, uh, someone's pain. Make someone happy. Go for a swim. Look at me. Am I worried? Okay, death. Ha, so what? And the little boy goes, thanks. I feel better now. And the father walks back to his bed. <laughs> and, the, and, and the last frame is him lying awake at night. <laughs> I mean, put the boy's fears aside and only to realize he doesn't have any answers either. And there's that famous story from the time of the Buddha. I won't go through it in detail, but it's famous and most everyone here has heard it about Gotami, the woman uh, from a poor family who finally is able to get married, but the, her in-laws sort of harass her because they don't think she's good enough for their son. Finally, she gives birth to a boy. She gets a little respect because in that society, that's how you get respect as a woman. One of the few ways is you give the family a child, a boy especially, and uh, gets a little respect, and then the boy dies, and she can't handle it. And she goes a little crazy and takes the dead boy on her hip and walks around looking for somebody to help her bring the boy back to life or pretending that the boy is just sick and needs to be brought back to health. And some wise person sees that she's lost it and suggests that she goes ask the Buddha that the Buddha will give her some medicine for her son. So she goes, tracks down where the Buddha's at, asks the Buddha. The Buddha sees, kind of very quickly gets what's going on and says, yes, I can help your son. Go to town. Go to find a house that has not experienced any death and bring back a mustard seed. So this is like something really cheap that everybody in India would have. So she sets off. Of course, you get where this is going if you haven't heard this story before. After one house after another, everyone where she asks, you know, has anybody died in this household? Well, in that place, it's different than our places, you know, where we really, there are a lot of homes where maybe no one's died. But in a house, in a normal village, traditional culture, you know, where these places have been around for a while, well, people are dying all the time. We don't have special places for people to die. They just die in their homes. And, uh, and so she couldn't find anybody. And it was after a while, after maybe who knows how many homes, where something dawned in her mind. That, and this is what it says. This is sort of poignant, just the, the way the sutta reads. This is not just the truth for one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and people, this indeed is what is true, impermanence. And so she went back to the Buddha, and uh, the Buddha said, uh, 
Have you obtained, go to me, the mustard seed? And she responded, Finished, sir, is the matter of the mustard seed. You have indeed restored me. And then the Buddha gave her this verse. A person with a mind that clings, deranged to sons or possessions, is swept away by death that comes like muddy flood, like a mighty flood to a sleeping town. And as often these stories goes, she asked the Buddha to ordain. She became a Bukuni and uh, in a very short time became one of the fully enlightened beings, an Arhat. So this is what, you know, we don't need to wait until our next pet dies or we run over a squirrel or a loved one dies or we see a nature program about, you know, that shows death or we do a Buddhist contemplation. But we can just begin to integrate in little ways. And, you know, in this contemplation of impermanence we've been doing this last month, we'd like to actually... Notice in just very ordinary ways, in the very ordinary cessation of moments, the cessation of a breath, the cessation of a day, the cessation of an event, that that cessation, the recognizing the you know breaking of a cup that you really like or the flower that's fading, and these very simple, ordinary things that we come across many, many times in a day, it can evoke the the truth of impermanence that's that's beyond that particular event, but that's true about all things. And then we can begin to play with the peace that arises in the heart when we come into alignment, like that chant we've been doing that's been used since the time of the Buddha all the time, but especially at funerals, that uh, all conditions things come and go, understanding, like opening to this reality here and now of that, that all things come and go, opening to that completely is the deepest, the greatest happiness, is the happiness of peace. The heart that's not expecting things to be other than they are. So I want to share a poem before we break into small groups for tonight's small group discussions. Maybe time for two poems, but for sure one. This is by a, a poet named Red Hawk. The time comes when it's easier to die. We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we're, even when we've had, have had enough. And it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. And I just want to stop here just because the image the poet is creating is so powerful. And we've all seen movies and read other pieces like there are a lot of Scandinavian movies that are so good at evoking the, the desolation. And I just started listening to a talk the other, I guess yesterday, Ajahn Sumedho called Death, Doom, and Destruction. A little tongue-in-cheek, but the idea is partly we like images and artistic expressions of death, doom, and destruction. Or 
And, and really it's been, it's evolved to a fine art of how we can bring up in our own mind, artists expressing in through various forms, that sense of desolation, the bleakness, the hollowness, the emptiness, but not in a Buddhist positive sense, but like, uh, because for this for us is a real spiritual edge. Like, are we willing to let that in? Basically, we have to let in whatever we're afraid of letting in. Some of you know, like in the Tibetan system, they have made this really, I think, a fine, uh, refined spiritual art, this whole teaching on the bardo. So at the time of death, you know, the body has one trajectory, the mind has another trajectory. So the body dies and ceases its life. The mind stream continues, but now the mind isn't tethered to the body. And at that time, it's like uh, not being tethered to this physical existence. The mind can create any image. This is sort of the Bardo state. Beautiful images of talking to Jesus or meeting the Buddha. White light, tunnels of white light, and horrific images. And the idea is to be completely open and unmoved by whatever comes, not to grasp or cling to any image the mind creates. That's the spiritual path. We do that in daily life, and then it's sort of in preparation for this time. I mean, I don't know, I don't have memories of any (coughs) death experience, but this all seems intuitive to me whatever that's worth. But the idea, just in terms of our live life now, is these images of death, and whatever whatever image of death we're least inclined to want to turn toward or face, whether it's being the flesh being eaten by maggots, or some more artistic sense of desolation, nothing matters, Whatever it might be, like this poet's images, you know, the cold. We were having a, Gail and I and Louise were having a meeting earlier about some board business and, uh, Gail was saying, yeah, seeing a property in November with the cold wind and the kind of grayness of the bark and the faded colors of the leaves, you know, that have begun to rot and there's no kind of vibrancy in the leaves anymore. You know, so whatever those images are, we want to use them because they allow us to turn toward what the heart assumes is unacceptable. And like that opening quote that I read from Stephen Levine, which is just a real gem of a teaching for us, the distance from our pain, from our wounds, from our fear, from our grief is the distance from our true nature or from the distance that we create from freedom. Anything the heart assumes it can't open to, that separation, that distance, is a problem for us. So let me just finish the poem. That's when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. 
it will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Boy, and this is just where we are with my dad now. You know, where there's, there's always something. And then the stress of all the medical interventions are stressful and creating more issues that then he has to deal with. And then the poem continues, Friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you, and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. And you will still tremble in the light, go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. This is tricky, so it's death that's left holding a bag full of bones. Right? And this, I th- think, captures the Buddha's teachings in a very deep, poetic way. I don't know if he studied Buddhism at all, um, but it's a beautiful poem. I'll have this sent out to everybody. So we'll end uh, with the Anicca chant, for those of you who have memorized it or just follow along. Anicca Vata Sankara Upadhitua nirushanti te sang upasamo sukho. Impermanent are all component things, they arise and cease, that is their nature. They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.